Acts of the Apostles, chapter 21, 17 through 36. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related, one by one, things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach to all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what, we, in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law, in this place. Moreover, he even brought the Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune about the cohort of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran out to them. And when he saw and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who was and he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, following, crying out, Away with him. This is the word of the Lord. Just a couple of announcements for you before uh, we get into the text. Number one, oh goodness. Uh, number one, we've got a worship night. Five years we have turned as a church, so we're um, so we're going to celebrate that uh, next Sunday. Um, so Sunday afternoon we'll start around 4:30. We're going to eat together. We're going to share share a meal together. I think in the email um, there's been some word about what you can bring. We're going to potluck, baby. So make sure 
that you get your last name and what you're bringing uh, with that. If you did not get that email, if you're in a life group, your leader should share that with you. So we'll send it out this week as well um, as to what to bring. And then happy two years on our church-wide reading plan. Yeah. The four of you that are still on it. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. I know a lot of you are. Uh, one thing that we're, that's not up there, we do have community basics after church. Um, if you are looking to get plugged into a life group, that is the first step for you to come and just learn uh, about life groups, expectations of them, and all that stuff. So you can meet at uh, the lobby, does that work? Yeah, meet in the lobby, and then Joseph will grab you, take you upstairs. And, yeah, Joseph. That's good. Let me, um, yeah, let me just uh, pray for us as we get into this. I would uh, encourage you, um, just as a, as a way to um, receive with your hearts, uh, if you're comfortable, just the posture of receiving with your hands. Um, we honor the Lord and we worship not only just with our minds, but with our very bodies. Father in heaven, we simply come again as people of the text. Believing these are not just words um, that were written down, but inspired by your very self. They're not just a means for how we live better or do things better, or become better people. But it's a story about your very love for humans. It's a love story. What you have done to be able to bring us back into relationship with yourself, what you have modeled in your very life as a template for how to truly live. And so, Father, as we come and we receive, would you do in us what needs to be done? Would you illuminate things in us that need that are dark, that need to come into the light? Would you speak again through your servant? And would all of us with joy Respond in loving obedience. Oh, it's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So, uh, August 2021, if you remember that month, um, that was when the Taliban took over Afghanistan. And it was devastating not only just for the country itself, but it forced many people, especially followers of Jesus, further even underground uh, or away from the country entirely. For example, if you are a woman who decides to convert to Christianity on her end, discovery can bring violence, house arrest, forced marriage, or sexual abuse. 
Women and girls already suffer oppression and discrimination, but following Jesus can severely exasperate this. Men who become followers of Jesus can face harassment, ostracism, kidnap, violence, and even death if discovered. There's thousands of refugees now living in countries bordering Afghanistan, often in poor conditions. Many Christians are among them. There's a woman who goes by the name Gilshan just for protection. That's not her real name, but she says the Taliban are conducting a door-to-door -door search to find us. God alone knows who's informed them about us or our whereabouts. But if they find us, they will kill us on the spot. Relatives of hers have already been killed. Christian neighbors have disappeared. She hopes and prays they're safe. She says it's our great desire to join with our brothers and sisters and worship God together, but now it's just not possible. We can only meet our pastor in the dead of night. No one can identify him or us. But despite everything she's risking, she knows that she's following a faithful God. She says, quote, our faith is in Christ and will remain so until our last breath. Dear God, help us find a straight and smooth path in our lives. There's a famous line by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a follower of Jesus during Nazi Germany, that would say, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I think before any sort of formation by the Holy Spirit, any growth in the Christian life, something must be true of us. Will we take up the call of Jesus to deny ourselves in a world that says, fulfill yourself, treat yourself, self-actualize, Will we learn to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Him? For the next seven chapters of Acts, we'll see Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. There's multiple trials that are going to take place. There's a lot of things we'll cover, but for today, I simply just want us to see the invitation from Paul's life as he marches to Jerusalem to come and die as a template for how to truly live. That's where we're going today. Over the past several weeks, we've seen Paul traverse a lot of ground. As Bobby preached on last week, uh, Paul was in Ephesus for three years. This is before we get to our passage today. He was in Ephesus for three years, and through a lot of tears we saw, he bid them farewell. Because I think he knew in his spirit this would be the last time he would ever see them. In fact, before Paul even gets to Jerusalem, verses 1 through 16 of this chapter, we didn't read them, but it shows us how multiple people are basically saying, bro, don't go. Don't do it. One prophet, even by the name of Agabus, who gave him a word that says, from the Holy Spirit, this is what's going to happen to you if you go. You will die. 
But Paul, he has counted the cost, it says. He's ready to die, no matter what happens. And then this is where we get to verse 17, our passage for today. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them, and he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So, when he was in the Gentile kind of territory, what he was doing is he was getting financial gifts together because he was planning to come to Jerusalem. And as a just an effort of goodwill and even reconciliation with the Jewish church, he wanted to give them a gift from the Gentiles, which is crazy because of how much they hated the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles would, as an effort of goodwill, they would have given this to the church in Jerusalem. And what it says in verse 19, that they all marveled at what God was doing. And that's really important because Luke is saying, this was something God was doing, not Paul. Which is important because if you have a problem with what's happening among the Gentiles, you don't have a problem with me, you have a problem with Yahweh. God is the one that is doing incredible things among the Gentiles, and he is bringing them now into the family of God. But it says they are all just like amazed at what's going on, but we see some underlying issues here coming to verse 20. It says when they heard this, they praised God. But then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have beliefs. These are Jewish followers of Jesus now. But all of them are still zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach that all the Jews who live among the Gentiles should turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their kids or live according to our customs. So that word there for thousands means like lots of thousands. Could be tens of thousands, myriad. And this far out number now, which is interesting, this number of Jewish Christians in Judea, Jerusalem, has now outnumbered the amount of Pharisees that are there. But many, and many of these believers, they loved Jesus, but they still followed Jewish customs. They circumcised their kids. If you don't know what that means, look it up later. They ate kosher. It was all still good things. There were, but there were some opponents of Paul that were saying that, Paul, you hate Jewish customs. And, we, and if we are Jewish, we should just stop doing them altogether. That's not what he was saying. All throughout Acts, it's actually the opposite. He's saying to stop telling the Gentiles to enforce your Jewishness on them. To make them do things in order to be brought into the family of God. Paul is not advocating for colonialism. He's advocating for evangelism. Not homogenizing an area, but bringing the gospel. And if customs are sinful, they yield to Jesus. But if not, then it's okay. And Paul models this wherever he went. If it wasn't just blatant sin against Jesus, he would let go of something, or he would come into a culture and he would honor it. First Corinthians 9, though I'm free, I belong to no one. I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible to the Jews I became like a Jew. Verse 21, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I'm free, though I'm not free from God's law, I'm under Christ's law. So as to win the 
law to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people. So he would practice different methods. He wouldn't impose his Jewishness on Gentiles. He would call the Jewish people even to the same task. Not forcing the Gentiles to come under the demands of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But ironically, what we have here is there are some Jewish believers saying that's what you're making us do, Paul. Is you're making us get rid of these things. Saying there would be a sin to eat kosher. So the Jewish leaders hatch a plan. They say, they um, listen yeah, here to everything that Paul is <laughs> having to put himself through. Verse 22, what shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you, Paul. There's four men here who've made a vow. So take these men, join in their purification rites, pay their expenses. So that, what does it say? I think I lost my place here. Oh, so they can have their heads shaved. <laughs> so time and time, Jews, if they were making a specific vow, this is known as the Nazarite vow, probably what's going on here, number six, just based on this description. So he's saying, I want you to pay for all their expenses. This is more than just a haircut. There's a lot of sacrifices that have to be done to fulfill this vow. Lambs and rams, like the whole sheep family, would have to be killed. There's baked goods, oil, wafers, grain offerings. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. This is expensive to do this vow. So Paul, pay for this. Foot the bill. Put your money where your mouth is. And show that you are willing to do whatever it takes to demonstrate that you do still honor and respect the Jews. If you're willing to do what it takes for the gospel to advance, then pay for these guys and yourself. That's so interesting. I had the chance to go uh, to Malawi in about 2019 or so, and we were told um, just a lot of things for us to prepare for, for some cultural things that just I was uncomfortable with personally, um, to earn goodwill among uh, tribal leaders and even just the pastors there. If we were to walk into a village, let's say that um, my translator was a man, um, it is culturally appropriate, in fact, it is frowned upon if you do not hold his hand. I was uncomfortable with that. Some toxic masculinity or something, but I was uncomfortable with doing that. But I was like, man, I, I, all right, George, let's do it. Men <laughs> for Jesus. And every time I would walk into a village, it, it was just, it was a willingness to listen. One time I was, I, well, I wasn't forced to, but I was like, again, I'm doing this for Jesus. I ate um, some goat intestine. I've not been right with dairy ever since, but I was like, this is a way that I can show that, hey, I, I love you, I respect you, I want to kill myself for this, but I will do this. It's just simple things that weren't wrong. Just 
just like, I want to show you that I'm like, I'm here for this. I think that's the same thing with Paul. We'll get to verse 24. It says, uh, everyone will know there is no truth then if you do these things about these reports about you. But that you, you yourself are even living in obedience to the law. But as for the Gentile believers, we have already written to them. Our decision that they should do at least this, they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from meat of, strength, of strangled animals, or from sexual immorality. So this is pointing back to Acts 15. They've already dealt with this. They said, yes, you don't have to become a Jew to become a follower of Jesus. It is repentance and trust in Jesus. But it is turning away from things that are clearly in opposition to Jesus. But we want you to earn goodwill with the Jews. So, you're up, kid. And Paul complies. He willingly subjugates himself to come under the law. Why? Because he loves people. He's willing to do whatever it takes. How about you? Will we do whatever it takes to reach people? Will we follow Jesus like this? Verse 26, the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple and he gave notice of the dates when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So we talked a little bit about like some of these laws that Paul was talking about here. Jewish society was run by three categories of law from the Torah. It was the civil, ceremonial, and the moral. The civil law was governmental law, like the way that Israel was governed. Ceremonial law was the sacrificial system. So this was central to Israel's worship, how they expressed their faith. This is how they could be in the presence of a holy God um, as an unholy people. And the moral law was simply what was right and wrong. This is something that's commanded not only the Old, but the New Testament. So we know Paul is willingly compliant to the plan. He's sacrificing some freedoms in order to reach the Jews because he would regularly teach in his letters, we've been set free from the law. What does he mean by that? Ceremonial and civil. Does it mean you've been set free from not murdering people? That is still bad. The moral law is what is binding. In order to go then into the temple, though, Paul would have to come under a ceremonial law. In order to discord with the people there, he would have to have been purified because he was in Gentile territory, as was Jewish custom. Verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the crowd. They seized him and they said, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere. It's a little hyperbolic, but everyone everywhere. All the time. It is against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple. No, he hasn't. And he's defiled this holy place. Verse 29, and Luke is basically saying that Trophimus was a um, Gentile and he was with Paul. And so they just assumed that he brought him into the temple. He didn't do that. 
But the Jews from Asia, these are probably from Ephesus, because again, the, it says the province of Asia, that's usually synonymous with Ephesus, that was the leading city in Asia. So the riot, do you, do you remember this? Acts 19, the riot of Ephesus, it like follows from here all the way to Jerusalem, the long way. And they're accusing Paul of doing all of these things. We have actually a picture of the temple. I'm not super sure if you can see this that well, but basically this rectangle in the center is the temple. And outside of that is what was known as the court of the Gentiles. They did not want them anywhere near the temple. You can be outside. And then even worse, like you go up a layer and then it would be the court of the women. And then you would go across the threshold and it would say the court of Israel, which was just the Jewish men. In the uh, court of the Gentiles, you would have this sign, which is this next picture. In Greek, it basically means if you go past this point, you will be responsible for your own death. The welcome party. But what's really interesting here, so this is the second temple. This is Herod's temple. The Old Testament temple, it did not segregate Jews and Gentiles. The inner court was for Yahweh. Then there was the sanctuary of the priests. Outside of that, Gentile, Jew, man, woman. Solomon even prays in 1 Kings that Gentiles would feel welcome. That the temple would be a place that they would come to know the Lord. That's 1 Kings 8 if you want to read that. But due to purity regulations from the priests, Herod's temple segregated Jew from Gentile and men from women. Cue Jesus. One of the judgments on the temple from Jesus was that he was saying this house was supposed to be a place of prayer. Matthew 21, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he says, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of robbers. He says, you have lost the plot line, Israel. You were supposed to be a city on a hill, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. In your life, in your obedience and surrender to Yahweh, you would demonstrate his very love and commitment to the nations. You would play a key role in showing the world what God is like. But you blew it. You forsook your God. You chased everything else but Him. And now you've made it impossible for even the Gentiles to know who I am. Because you're clogging up their very courts with your injustice and your brokenness. And I, I just, I know this is about Jewish temple, but I do have to pause right here. Is this true of us? Are we making it hard for lost people to come to know who Jesus is? In our hypocrisy, in our disunity, 
the way we chase everything other than Jesus, are we just no different than those who are lost? Are we actually making it harder for people to see why Jesus is the key to life? Because all people see about us is we're just sad, mean, sarcastic, and rude to each other and towards those who are lost. We are not making it easier. We're just clogging up the courts too with our own piety and our own hypocrisy. Gandhi would say, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. We might be passionate and singing in church, but our lives on Monday through Saturday are dark and dead. And Jesus has a warning for us. He would leave the temple courts. He would go and curse this fig tree. Just such a weird chapter. But this fig tree is representing God's people, Israel. And he says, you look so pretty on the outside, you are dead on the inside. This cannot be true for us. And so I think with that context and that verse in mind, imagine what Paul was probably feeling walking into the temple. He didn't lose the plot line. He gets it. He walks right into the heart of, his, of this city, full of his enemies, and he doesn't come to bicker with them. He just loves them. He positions himself. He, he sacrifices some freedoms. He pleads with them. He says, I'm innocent of these accusations. I've not defiled the temple, but what is happening here is not right. Yahweh has come and he has sent me to the Gentiles, as he would say in chapter 22. That the point all along was to graft all peoples into the family of God. He would even write from prison, again, from these enemies who put him in prison. He would write from prison to Ephesus, chapter 2. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace. He's made two groups, Gentile and Jew. He's destroyed the barrier. That dividing wall of hostility that we just saw. And he set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. He has made one new humanity, thus making peace. I love this. He'd say in Galatians, we're all children of God through faith. We've been baptized into Christ. There's neither what new, no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Even all of the things in the temple that was putting people in this corner and this corner and this corner says, no, we are all one in Christ. Enemies. Paul knew the cost of what it meant to come to this temple. It was deep, deep wounds, deep animosity. But his whole goal is I want to show the Jews I love them. I want to speak truth to them. Their king has come, repent. 
but blinded by their own disdain towards Paul. The Jews from Ephesus come and they stir up a mess. Verse 30. The whole city was aroused. People came running from all directions. They were seizing Paul. They were dragging him out from the temple. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the Roman troops, so it got so bad that the Roman troops started intervening. They took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd, so they were up kind of at the top of the temple. That's where they'd kind of look. And they saw all this like commotion and they came down. And so and the commander came up and he arrested him, bound him with two chains. Prophet Agabus said that would happen to you. And he asked uh, who he was and what he had done, but it was so ridiculous and loud he could not get the truth because of the uproar. And when verse 35, when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. And the crowd that followed, they just kept shouting, get rid of him. So such a ruckus. The soldiers came to Paul's rescue. It says later on in this chapter that they actually thought he was an assassin. <laughs> so there was an assassin apparently out in the wild who was leading like 4,000 people to like take over the Roman occupiers. It's like, no, that's not me. But in all of this, it looks like this plan has backfired. I guess that depends on who you ask. Because for Paul, it looks like the plan's going great, actually. Prophecy from Agabus fulfilled, I'm going to jail for Jesus. In fact, even at the end of the chapter, he's given a stage at the end where he's able to share his testimony with all of the people to say, I have been set free, I am preaching now to the Gentiles, which then leads him to his trial in the Sanhedrin, chapters 22 and 23. But what I want to focus on is just this last phrase here. So we've seen all of this kind of going on, Paul counting the cost clearly. But what's really interesting is this phrase and wording that Luke elects to use. Away with him. The word there for away is iro. It's the same wording that Luke uses in Jesus' trial when Jesus is in front of this same city when Pilate was giving the Jews the option to pick a murderer or Jesus. Luke 23, but the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Coincidence? It actually doesn't stop there. In fact, there would be six cycles from Acts 21 to Acts 28 of unjust trials, people shouting to kill Paul, no one able to find any fault in him, kind of like Jesus. This is Luke's intentional design. Four of Paul's trials would weirdly mirror Jesus's. Jesus before the Sanhedrin, and then Paul goes before the Sanhedrin. 
Jesus would then go before Pilate a first time. Paul would go before Roman governor number one, Felix. Jesus would go before Pilate a second time. Paul would go before Roman governor number two, Festus. Jesus would go before King Herod, and so would Paul. What is Luke doing here? Even in his design, what is he doing? He's not putting Paul and Jesus on the same level. He's not saying Paul equals Jesus. But Luke, who again is the writer of both Luke and Acts, he is making a provocative point in showing us these things. Paul's commitment to following Jesus and his radical, sacrificial love for his enemies, his willingness to do whatever it takes, no matter the cost, coincidentally led him to a similar fate as his king. There's so much more I could talk about with this, and we will over the next four weeks, but here's the one thing I just want you to chew on. The call from Jesus is to come and die. Which is such a word for us today. Put another way, the call of discipleship to Jesus is self-denial in an age of self-fulfillment. Paul knew the last time he was in Ephesus, he would never see his friends anymore. That's why I knew in Acts 21 the prophecy of Agabus was true. He was going to die. The march to Jerusalem was a death march. Acts 21, 13. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die for the name of Jesus. This is why the sacrifice of some freedoms and convictions on some secondary and tertiary theological issues for Paul was easy for him to do for the sake of unity. He was ready to die and do whatever it took for the sake of gospel renewal. Listen to Jesus' most common invitation to discipleship. You want to know what it means to follow him? Here it is, Mark 8, 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. At the center of apprenticeship to Jesus is a cross, a Roman torture device meant to cause excruciating pain and a slow suffering death. What has now become a church logo or like jewelry was, a sh was the most shameful and painful thing you could do to a person. You would hang there naked. You would slowly die from like asphyxiation. They would line the road to a city with crosses to show Roman dominance. In fact, it was so shameful that Roman citizens, no matter what they did, they would not be crucified. And it's so shameful that the only thing the gospel writers can write about it is to say, and they crucified him. 
It's not Mel Gibson, like, Passion of the Christ stuff. It's just they crucified him. And this is what Jesus chooses to explain discipleship to him? Do you want that? Are you sure? Because the call to Jesus is a crucifixion. What Bonhoeffer would say, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. And thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Jesus. And here it is. When Christ calls a man, a woman, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like the first disciples. It may be a death like Luther who had to leave the monastery, but it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus, death of the old man at Christ's call. Bonhoeffer, if you know his story, he was later murdered by the Gestapo in Nazi Germany. For his resistance to Hitler and his commitment to Jesus, Bonhoeffer was leading a radical counterformation in the way of Jesus in the face of Hitler's formation of an entire nation around evil. So for Bonhoeffer, it was a literal death. For a lot of saints in history of Christianity, it's been a literal death. But for all of us, it is some form of death. It is unavoidable. The call to self-denial sounds alien to us because we have been completely submerged in a culture of self-fulfillment. Saying no to yourself and saying yes to Jesus sounds ridiculous. Most of us cannot fathom a vision of the good life that does not involve getting what we want. Let me clarify something, though. Jesus is not calling us to deny ourselves, but ourself. He's not saying change your personality unless there might be some things you need to change that stink. You should probably work on. I also don't see Jesus telling us to hate ourselves. In the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor, what, as yourself. I do think Jesus is calling us to a kind of love of ourself. That's learning to see ourselves the way that God does, as his crown of creation. Deeply loved by him. But we are not God, as culture says. So we don't self-deprecate and hate ourselves, but we also don't self-elevate. We love ourselves correctly. We care for our bodies through exercise, good eating, our minds and our souls, through what we put into them, the things we watch. 
through good therapy, through what we read, through who we spend time with, through spending time with just yourself in solitude. <laughs> Some of you are like, that sounds miserable. I just lovingly would say, if you're fearful to just be with yourself, that's something to explore. Because how can you learn to love others if you don't even like spending time with just yourself and quiet before God? These are all things Jesus wants us to explore, but what he is saying is the self, akin to the flesh in the New Testament. The access point of the devil's lies that are then normalized in our world. Our disordered desires, that stuff. And this is Paul's life, a willingness to lay down things like comfort and safety, good things. But it's not making them the idols of your heart, but it's saying, Jesus, I lay these at your feet. Do with them as you please. Oh my gosh, that's hard. This is Paul's life. He would say from prison to the church in Galatia, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is I who no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He'd say in chapter 5, 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Paul has died to his flesh, and in doing so, he has come fully alive. A deep happiness, a, a willingness, a calm spirit. His desires have been put to death, or at least in their proper place. And for Jesus, the cross is the entry point into discipleship, into life to the full. It is how we live, we die. Say yes to Jesus is to say no to living by my own definition of good and evil, spending my time how I want or my money how I want. So we all, all of us need to hear that. To hyper-individualism, to like just the full-blown hedonistic pursuit of our day. It is a thousand tiny deaths that all leads up to one massive life. Legend has it that the Crusades, which is definitely a low point, but legend has it that the Knights Templar, before going into battle, they would be baptized. And as they were going under the water, they would hold up a sword above the water because they would signify that Jesus, you can have all of me but not this violence that I'm about to do in your name. Whether this is legend or history, we all do this. It might not be a sword, but maybe it's your credit card. Or it's a relationship. Or it's a sexual ethic. Or it's a wound. Or it's an entertainment habit. Or it's a political party. Or it's a theological position. How often do we say, have all of me, Jesus, except this thing? This is mine. 
want that to, he says. 8.35 of Mark, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. There really are only two options here. You either deny Jesus and you follow yourself. Desire is put on the throne of your life. You make getting what you want the ultimate authority and driving motivation in your life. Or you deny yourself and you follow Jesus. You crucify the desires of your flesh and you tap into even deeper desires for God. And he's not pretending this is easy. He clearly lays out discipleship to them, the cost of it. But I do think he gives us an even more haunting warning of non-discipleship to him. Meaning it will cost you so much more not to follow him. It is your soul versus yourself. Are you willing to trade long-term, eternal unity with Christ with short-term pleasure? Do the math. How much is your soul worth to you? This is why we need trust. We repent, as Jesus says. We rethink what we think will lead to our deepest happiness. We trust that it is in Jesus, period. Come lose your life, but then find true life in God. He's not saying just come live by faith. We all do that. The question is not whether you live by faith. It is who or what you put your faith in. Is it this thing or this person? Or is it him? We all live by faith. Whether you completely reject faith, that is in and of itself faith. So in despair and anxiety, is trust in your phone to self-soothe you? Or is it in quiet, silence, and solitude before your father letting him do work on you? Have you put your faith in your career for your deep heart longings? What happens when the job sucks? It's not fulfilling. It's not doing what you want it to because we've all been told that we can just be who we want do what you want, but what if Jesus is calling you to something that you didn't really want to do? Because he may be inviting you into this unique way that you bear the image of Jesus and you get to think kingdom-minded around it rather than this is here purely to satisfy and build my own. It's faith in your sexuality where people exist to satisfy my sexual desire which is the most dehumanizing thing we can do to a person. Do you see yourself as simply just the product of desire and the best thing I can do and should do is for me to just sleep with whoever I want? Or do you give those longings to Jesus who is able to empathize with our weakness? Where you can say, man, this is so hard, but I am yours, I am choosing to trust you and whatever this means for me to follow you. I'm, I'm not sure what you need to die to. But I know it's something. Because the invitation of Jesus, of Paul, of Bonnie,
Bonhoeffer and Sean from the beginning illustration is simply to come and follow him into death. But in doing so, you become the most you. To crucify the desires of the self is to tap into deeper desires of God, your truest self. To become fully alive in Jesus, the telos of humanity, to become a person of love as defined by Jesus, united to God through his spirit. So how do we win this war for our soul in a secular age that says we don't even have one? We die, but then we live. Whoever wants to be my disciple. deny themselves and take up the cross because whoever loses their life for the sake of the gospel will find it. So I just really have one thing for you to meditate on and think through as a practice this week. I just want you to be honest. Where does Jesus not have all of you? I want you to meditate on that. If you're in a life group, I want you to confess that to someone you trust in your community. Help me in this. Hold me to this. Is it your money? Is it your sexuality? Your time? Maybe it's just you. Do you need to, for the first time, see Jesus for who he is? The key to life that you ache for and put trust and follow them. I don't know what it is, but we are all invited to come and die to live. So stand. Before we do anything, I just for 30 seconds, it's just same posture, receiving, ask the Spirit. What do you want? Where am I not surrendered to you? I yield to you. It's just for 30 seconds. Just simply pause and meditate on that. 